So if you have uh, your Bibles, uh, have them open at Matthew uh, 27 and 28. Uh, that's where we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. Uh, so this morning, uh, I'm going to speak to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the evidence and the implications. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the evidence and the implications. Uh, many years ago, in the 1800s, uh, a man called Dr. Simon Greenleaf uh, was a lawyer who helped the Harvard Law School gain widespread credibility. Uh, he wrote a three-volume legal masterpiece, which is called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. Now, this uh, treatise has been called the greatest single authority in the entire literature of legal procedure. Uh, today, the, in, the, in America, their judicial system relies on the rules of evidence established by Dr. Greenleaf. And this doctor decided to use the rules of his book about the laws of evidence to test the proposition that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. That it, it, it was a real historical event. Would this claim, he said, hold up in a court of law? And focusing his brilliant legal mind on the facts of history, Greenleaf began applying his rules of evidence to the case of Jesus' resurrection. And the more Greenleaf investigated the record of history, the more evidence he discovered supporting the claim that Jesus had indeed risen from the tomb. Applying his own rules of evidence to the facts, he accepted the resurrection bodily as the best explanation for the events that took place immediately following the crucifixion. Now, I don't expect you to read his three-volume treatise. I have not read it, I confess. But there are many good and helpful uh, writings that examine the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can see from these and, and lots of uh, other places that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence-based and happened in history. Our faith in Jesus is not based on a myth. We don't believe in a fairy story. Christ bodily rose from the dead. And so this morning, uh, we're going to examine the evidence of the resurrection. How can we know that this is true? And then if this is true, which it is, and we'll see it is, uh, what are the implications for us uh, today. Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul, the apostle, rightly says that our faith is in vain. There is no point to Christianity, no point at all without the resurrection. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There'd be no assurance of life after death. There is no trustworthiness that anything that Jesus or his first followers said is true because they all be liars, because they all said that he has risen from the dead. And so this morning, let's consider the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and the implications. 
So first of all, though, we're going to look at the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, what does the documents say? So we're going to look at Matthew's account. Matthew uh, was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel, like all the gospels, is a historical document written by people who were either eyewitnesses or who wrote down eyewitness accounts of what actually happened in time and space. But before looking at the gospel itself, let me just explain how we can trust the gospel account itself. How do we know that these documents are true? Well, recently I've read um, a number of biographies on presidents of the United States. I did this because I was going to Washington last year, and I wanted to read about them before visiting some of the places where they worked. And one of the presidents that I read about was a man called Dwight Eisenhower. As well as being the president, he also was the commander of the Allied forces in Europe during World War II. And towards the end of World War II, Eisenhower led the liberation of the Nazi concentration camps that were used to murder millions of Jews and other people. And I want you to listen to what Eisenhower wrote in his diary. Because Eisenhower, when he saw what happened, he said that the evil was so great, people would not believe that this has really happened. And so listen to what he said. The writing's small, but you can just listen if you can't see it. He said, I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify at first hand about these things in case there ever grew up at home the belief or assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. Some members of the visiting party were unable to go through with the ordeal. I not only did... But as soon as I returned to Patton's headquarters, I sent communications to both Washington and London, urging the two governments to send instantly to Germany a random group of newspaper editors and representative groups from the national legislatures. I felt that the evidence should be immediately placed before the American and British publics in a fashion that would leave no room for cynical doubt. Do you see what he's doing there? He's calling people to come and see what's happened so they can see it for themselves as eyewitnesses and tell others so that there would be no room for doubt. And Eisenhower predicted that future generations would deny that such things took place because they were so horrific. And he was right. They're called Holocaust deniers, aren't they? Now, the Holocaust and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, are totally different types and things of events. But the same kind of thing is going on in Matthew's gospel. Eyewitness accounts. And in Matthew 28 and verses 11 to 15, the end of the passage you read, you see a group there trying to deny or make it seem like the resurrection didn't happen. But like Eisenhower gathered evidence to show what happened, the gospels do the same kind of thing. But what evidence have we got that the gospel eyewitness accounts are reliable? Well, in order to, uh, to verify the accuracy of a manuscript, historians examine how close the writing was to the events that happened. So in the case of, of Eisenhower, he was there, and his documents are written at the time, 
And others wrote the same kind of things at the same time. So we can know in, that we can trust what Eisenhower is saying because we know he was there and there was photography. But for ancient history, before photography, the integrity of an ancient writing is determined by two things. One, how many, number, how, how many manuscripts are available and two, how close are they to the events they talk about? Well, for the Gospels, there are over 5,300 known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,300. And if you include other languages, there are over 24,000 manuscripts that, that are dated no more than 50 years after the events they described. That is, within the lifetime of those that saw the events happen. So I've got a table, uh, just it's maybe not that clear. I can send, if you want a copy of this, by the way, I can send it to you. But it just shows that compared to other events of ancient history, the documents of the New Testament have thousands and thousands and thousands more. And they are written in a time span very close to the events that happened. And so there is very strong evidence for the accuracy of the gospel manuscripts Nothing else in ancient history comes even close to the kind of accuracy and evidence that is produced with the New Testament documents. So we can trust that what we read here in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark and in Luke and in John, and in fact in the whole of the New Testament, is the eyewitness accounts written by those who saw these things happen. It is absolutely accurate. And so, let's look at the eyewitness accounts. Let's look at Matthew, um, let's look at Matthew uh, first of all, 27, from verses 62 to 65, where we see some eyewitnesses, so that they provide evidence that Jesus was alive. So there's two sources in Matthew 27. There is the religious leaders, and there is the women. So in verse 62 and 63, they, the religious leaders re remember that Jesus said... After three days, I will rise again. Jesus had spoken of his resurrection a number of times, and the religious leaders remembered that. And in verse 63, they called Jesus a deceiver because he had said these things. They had no right to call Jesus a deceiver, at least until after the third day, but they said he's a deceiver because he's not going to rise again. And in verse 64, notice they asked Pilate, to give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Now, the third day is important here. Jesus died on the Friday, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, the first day of the week. It doesn't mean three literal 24 days, 24 hour days, but he rose at some point on the third day, which is the Sunday. And people believed in those days that after the third day, the soul departed the body. And so one was truly dead if they had been in the grave on the third day. But the main reason for securing the tomb was to stop any potential theft of the body that could lead to the claim of resurrection. And so the religious leader said that that deception that Jesus has risen would be worse than the first, his claim to be Messiah, the Son of God. However, if Jesus really did rise... Well, then both of those claims would be true. He would be risen and he would be the Messiah. And so Pilate gave them a guard and he told them to make the tomb as secure as they liked. 
And then we get this delicious irony because we know what happens at the end of the passage that we read earlier on. In verse 66, So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So they made it nigh on impossible to steal the body. Which is ironic because later we'll see that's what they pay the soldiers to say happened. The seal was a marker that let people know that this tomb was not to be opened or you will die by the wrath of Rome. And the guards would be a deterrent to make sure no one could get in. And so in securing the tomb, the religious leaders made it impossible to steal the body. And as we move on to chapter 28, we move on to the witness of the women. So in verse 1 of chapter 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary go to the tomb. Uh, They were at the death of Jesus. They were opposite the tomb, watching him be buried. And here they are going back to the tomb. They, They knew where the tomb was. Matthew writes that they went to look at the tomb. Mark and Luke say how they planned to put spices on the body. They expected, when they went there, for Jesus' body to be in the tomb. But in verse 2, there is a shock. There's a violent earthquake, and an angel rolled back the stone. The angel is described in verse 3. The point of verse 3 there is to show us this is not a human being. The angel's appearance was like lightning. His clothes, uh, white as snow. The description is to show us that it's God's hand at work. In what's going on. No human being rolled back the stone. That's an important fact. No human being was involved in what was coming next. This is the mighty hand of God at work. God raised him from the dead. Notice in verse 4 how the angel literally put the fear of God into the guards. We read that they were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Again, note the irony there. The guards were supposed to be guarding the dead body, but they become like dead men. And the body they're supposed to be guarding isn't even in the tomb, it's alive. And in verse 5, the angel speaks. The women hear his voice, telling them not to be afraid like the guards are. He speaks of words of comfort and reassurance. Don't be afraid. I know why you're here. The angel gives assurance that Jesus really did die. He was crucified. But in verse 6, look at these wonderful words. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. The angel doesn't say that Jesus is risen, but he doesn't just say it, but the purpose of the angel saying it is to show that he's risen. Notice how the angel says in verse 6, Come and see the place where he lay. And there we see the reason why the stone is rolled away. You see, the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out of the tomb. The angel rolled the stone away to let the women in the tomb so they could see he wasn't there. And that's what they see. Where Jesus had been laying was empty. The tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. We're not told the mechanics of how Jesus was raised. We're not told exactly what time on the third day it happened. We're told the tomb was empty and that he is risen from the dead. 
And then in verse 9, as they run to tell the disciples, these women, these eyewitnesses, they meet with Jesus. Notice, they see him alive. So they've, they've seen the empty tomb, and now they see him physically alive. Notice, they hear him speak. He says there, greetings. They touch him. They clasp his feet. These women are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They've seen him. They've heard him. They've touched him. This is a real human being in a physical body that they can hear and see and touch. The women are eyewitnesses. Interestingly, the fact that the women are the first eyewitnesses is a piece of evidence in itself. For in this time of history, women were not seen as trustworthy witnesses in court. I'm not saying that's right, I'm saying that's what it was. If this was made up, if this gospel was made up, it would not use women as the first eyewitnesses. The fact that they are used is evidence that it's true. And there are a number of facts from this story that are um, not disputed even by the enemies of Jesus. Let me just speak through some of the evidence here. First of all, the death and resurrection of Jesus was prophesied about before it happened by Jesus himself and in the Old Testament hundreds of years before these things happened. It was said he would rise. Second, Jesus really did die. The Romans knew what they were doing when it came to the killing of human beings. They were experts at this. Okay, they were, they were experts. And when it came to crucifixion, people didn't come down from the cross alive. Jesus would not allow, be allowed to be taken down from the cross unless he was really dead. No one disputes that Jesus actually died. Thirdly, the tomb was definitely empty. This also is indisputable. If this was not the case then the enemies of Jesus would have shown the body, wouldn't they? The body would have been produced. But there's no evidence that the body has ever been seen. And we'll see in verses 11 to 15 of Matthew 28 that they would have loved the enemies of Jesus to, to pick up a body and say, there it is. Uh, fourthly, many people claim to see Jesus alive. So we've read about two women here but there are hundreds of other witnesses to, the, to, the, to seeing Jesus in the flesh. Later on in history, we see that many of those who claimed to see Jesus alive, especially the apostles, suffered and died claiming this was true. It's hard to believe, is it not, that they died for something that wasn't really true, for a lie. Uh, then the church, the followers of Jesus, who confessed that he literally rose from the dead, grew massively in the weeks after the resurrection. It grew from nothing and began in the very place these things happened, and it grew to become thousands, and then churches grew all over the world, and it continues to grow today. And then finally, um, just for now, uh, the, the enemies of Jesus were converted Paul the Apostle being one of them. People who were Jesus' enemies, who, who, who did not want to believe that he rose from the dead, 
and had no reason to lie about it, came to believe that this is true. These are the facts, and the best explanation for them is that Jesus literally rose from the dead. These are right. Uh, what, what, what other reason would there be? What other explanation for the evidence is there? What would you say? How could this not be true? However, throughout history, there have been many what are called counter theories. So if you're sitting here as a skeptic and you're thinking, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, uh, I want you to think, well, what, what else happened then? And here are some things you might say. Um, there are a number of them, and one of them is found in Matthew chapter 28, actually. This is the first counter theory. Um, notice in verse 11 that the women were on their way, and the guards went into the city, and they reported to the chief priests what happened. Now, the word in verse 11, reported, uh, is an interesting Greek word. It's a word that's ap angelo, which means to bring news or report. And the reason it's important in, in, to know that word is because it's repeated in verses 8, 10, and 11. In verses 8 and 10, the English word we have there is tell. And the word in verse 11 is translated report. And the reason that's important is because the women and the guards go and report the same thing. They both do the same thing. The women go tell the disciples. The guards go tell the chief priests. The same story. Well, the disciples will come to see believed, but the chief priests, they don't. And so notice in verse 11, the chief priests were told everything that had happened. So that would be, uh, at the very least, the earthquake, the angel, and the empty tomb. And that's exactly what the religious leaders feared. They were terrified that this would happen. That's why they secured the tomb. They put the seal on it and they had the soldiers there. And it's interesting to note that not once did they deny that the tomb was empty. They give other explanations for things, but they never say it's, empty, it's not empty. If they could produce a body, they would have done so for sure. That would have ended any claims of resurrection. But they couldn't produce a body. So they devise a plan. And ironically... In light of what we read earlier, their plan is ridiculous, isn't it? They planned to claim the body was stolen, the very thing they had tried to make impossible to happen. So we read in verses 12 to 14 that they bribed the soldiers to say that the body was stolen while they slept. Now, it must have been some bribe, because these soldiers would have to admit they were rubbish soldiers. They would be sleeping on the job, sleeping through an earthquake... I know some of you probably could sleep through an earthquake, but uh, the soldiers were supposed to be on guard, and if they weren't staying awake, they could be executed for dereliction of duty. So they'd have to admit that they were rubbish soldiers. But they took the bribe. The religious leaders promised in verse 14 to keep them out of trouble. And that story persists, it says, until this day. Now, when uh, Matthew wrote, that story was going around, uh, but versions of it survive uh, in the early church. Uh, a famous debate between a Christian called Justin and a Jew called Trypho contained an argument around 100 years later which said the same thing. But the theory of a, of a stolen body 
just doesn't hold water. The guards at the tomb would have been woken by the earthquake and the stone being rolled away. But also, just again, would the disciples have suffered deprivation and death later for their claims that Jesus was alive if they just nicked the body? Surely they would not go through all they have gone through if it was a lie. The stolen body is the first of many stories you may hear from people who claim he did not rise. Others claim that he didn't really die on the cross, but seemed dead until the resurrection. That's known as the swoon theory. But again, the Romans knew what they were doing when they executed someone. You did not come down alive from the cross. Some people claim that Jesus was placed in a different tomb from the one that was empty. But Jesus was seen being put in Joseph's tomb. The guards were there. He could not have been moved. Another major theory is that there was a mass hallucination. I mean, that's really clutching at straws. I mean, for a start, Jesus was never just in one place at one time, but he, he appeared multiple times in multiple places. And there would have to have been then multiple hallucinations. It just doesn't stack up as credible. Like many today, the religious leaders could not accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's not lack of evidence. In fact, the best explanation for the evidence is that he is risen indeed, isn't it? The problem for the religious leaders and the rejectors of the gospel today is that the consequences of the resurrection for them are so well-transforming, so humbling, that they choose to cover it up rather than believe it's true. So what are the consequences? Well, finally, let's think through the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the implications are massive. They're huge. First of all, we can trust that what Jesus says about everything is true. Okay? Everything he says we can trust is true. He told us he would die for our sins and he would rise from the dead. Now, people don't normally rise from the dead. This is a, um, I read recently, a uniquely unique event. It doesn't happen. It's not a regular occurrence. But if it did happen, which the evidence shows it did, then we can trust what Jesus says. He told us about who God is. He told us what God expects. He told us how to be in relationship with God. He told us how to live the life that we're made for. If he rose again, then all he said about these things are true. And we can submit our lives to him, trusting him. Secondly, this means our sins can be forgiven. Jesus has died in our place for our sins. And his resurrection shows that that sacrifice is enough. It means God is pleased with the sacrifice. Our sins can be forgiven. All that you have done, all that you have thought, all that you have said, everything can be forgiven. And you don't have to face the judgment of God for your sins. Because Christ is risen from the dead. That's a great implication, isn't it? Paul writes, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification means made right with God. We can be when we put our faith in Jesus. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus means that he, 
And he alone is the ruler over everything. And the Bible tells us that that means he is going to judge the world. Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There will be justice one day. All sin will be paid for. And unless Jesus pays for your sin, you will be judged for your sin. The resurrection is proof of this. He is your judge. Fourthly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we too will rise again. Paul writes how Jesus is the first fruits of a big harvest. The Bible says that those who put their trust in him will have new bodies in a new world where there is no sin and there is no death and there is no sickness and anything that is bad, it is all gone. This means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope. And when I say hope, I'm not talking about some vain hope, like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or something like that. It's a uh, hope that is certain. The, the, the word in the Greek means this is really going to happen. And so I fix my mind and my eyes and my heart and my life on this certainty. Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We will rise with him. It's a great implication, isn't it? And finally, we can know because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can know that living for Jesus is absolutely worth it. Even when it's hard, even when we don't feel like following Jesus, even when the enemies of the world are attacking us, living for Jesus is worth it because he's risen from the dead. Again, Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 says, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is always worth following Jesus. Always. It is not in vain because Christ is risen from the dead. Don't give up. Don't walk away. Christ is risen from the dead. It is worth following Jesus. I want to close uh, with a story. Every year in our church uh, family, we have members that pass away and go to be with the Lord. And that makes Easter sometimes quite sad, actually, because it reminds us of those loved ones. And recently, uh, Carol Whitehouse was one of those that went to be with the Lord. And one of the times uh, before she died, a couple of weeks before that I visited her, I read Carol, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Carol knew 
that she was dying. But she knew that Christ was risen. And I had a wonderful time with her and John because after reading Matthew 28, 1 to 10, Carol said to me, they never found the body, did they? They never found the body. And I responded, no. No, they never did. Christ is risen. And because she knew that Christ is risen, based on evidence that it was true, she did not fear death. She died trusting in Jesus Christ and now is with him forever. That's the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That you don't need to fear death. You can die knowing that you're going to be with Jesus Christ in glory forever. We don't fear death. He is risen indeed, and it is true. And as Carol said, they never found the body. Never. And the reason they didn't find the body is because it's not here. It is in heaven. There is a man in heaven right now, Jesus Christ. And we will be with him. And one day, as Christians, we will be raised with him. We will be like him. We will see him as he is. And we will be celebrating with him for all eternity. So in many ways, we can be jealous of Carol, can't we? (laughs) Because she's there right now. But we will be there too. If our faith is in Jesus Christ. And so if you are here this morning... And you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Today is a wonderful opportunity for you to do just that. You can give your life to Jesus and have eternal life with him. There's opportunity to do that uh, this morning as we uh, have coffee together. If you want to speak to somebody, uh, I'm available to speak to. Uh, there's a welcome team with the um, lanyards, you can speak to them. But also, you're probably sitting within like a meter of a Christian. <laughs> you can turn to them and speak to them about Jesus, uh, and they can tell you how to put your faith in him. You just need to pray that God would forgive your sins, and you commit to following Jesus Christ as your king. And if you want to do that, today is a great opportunity to do just that. So I'm going to pray. Uh, Just to finish, and then we're going to sing our final uh, resurrection song, Where is our hope in life and death? So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Christ is risen indeed. We thank you that all those implications we talked about are absolutely true. And we thank you that today we have hope. And every day we have hope because Jesus is alive. And I just pray uh, for those here that have not committed their lives to Jesus. Holy Spirit, speak to their hearts even right now that they would put faith in the risen Lord Jesus. For those of us that are followers of Christ, may we keep following you and stand firm knowing that our labor for you is never in vain. And we thank you for this morning and the celebration time we can have together. In Jesus' mighty, saving name, we pray. Amen. Well, let's uh, close with uh, a wonderful song of resurrection hope.
What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Let's stand and sing.
Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.